Hi, friends, and welcome back to House Wine. Uh, this is a show for anyone who would like to know more about wine, to learn about wine, to drink <clears throat> really good wine. I am Rachel. I'm the host, and I also write and produce this show. I am a certified sommelier from Toronto, and we have the pillow fort all set up tonight. We are ready to go. We are ready to talk together, or, you know, I'm going to talk to myself, and then eventually there'll be somebody on the other side to listen to this subject, to listen to this thing that I felt I needed to make a full episode about. Why? It's a difficult subject, so I think it merits like having a little bit of explanation and talking your way through it. But um, was it a hundred percent necessary? Uh, I'll let you guys be the judge of that. But you guys love your wine law episodes, you really, really do, and I commend you for that because I'm clearly a nerd who likes to write about wine law, so. Pillow Fort set up. Tonight, we are going to talk about South African wine law. So we have talked about South Africa before. In fact, just over a year ago when we first discussed South Africa, I think that episode can pretty much be summed up as kind of like a, a South Africa 101. We kind of went over the history and we went over a lot of the um, like historical styles and the modern styles of wine that they're making in South Africa. And then we also talked about some producers, some of the people that are making sort of inter interesting and noteworthy wines in South Africa and kind of like the new, like the quote unquote new wine history of South Africa. Um, with a lot of uh, investment in Black-owned wineries and Black winemakers. Very, very different from the beginning of the wine culture there that was very deeply rooted in colonialism, obviously, and the slave trade and the sugar trade, uh, where they would make these kinds of wines that were either, you know, A, be enticing to the tastes of the European market at the time, aka sweet wines, or be these kinds of wines that were like heavily fortified, um, sort of these like knockoff port sherry styles uh, that could be used for supplying ships that were participating in this trade. Uh, we all know uh, at this point that the Dutch East India Company was pretty much like an evil empire, even if they did give us some of the nicest you know, communes in Bordeaux. So if you're looking to get a crash course on South Africa before we do this deep dive into South African wine law specifically, uh, then I suggest heading back to episode nine in season one, uh, where we go through all of the major things that you need to know uh, to sort of familiarize yourself with South African wine. Now, in that episode, I um, I kind of deliberately shied away from South African wine law a little. Why, you may ask, I did not go in depth into the nuances of uh, South African wine law because it's intense. It's kind of insane. And if you're from South Africa and maybe you're like a winemaker or something, I'm sorry, it, but it's very like from the outside looking in, it's like a real head scratcher. I, I did a 
I did, though, a little sort of like hierarchy of South African wine law in that episode, and I basically ended the discussion with saying that wards are very confusing, (laughs) and that if you want to know more uh, on how South African wine law works, then there was a link in the show notes to the WOSA website, and you can read about it if you want to know more. But why read about it when you can just listen to yet another podcast uh, about me telling you about how it works? More detailed uh, and pretty exciting. So that is my uh, big intro into why we are revisiting this subject. So South Africa is um, one of those countries that I have always kind of uh, felt like when I study, I'm banging my head against a wall. I just find it, for me personally, a very, very difficult country to sort of like get a grasp on what's going on. Usually when a country or wine region remains elusive or is one of those regions that you kind of go, ugh, like love the wines, but studying it is so hard. Uh, the root of that difficulty is in the wine law. Because every country has, of course, their own unique wine legislation and rules about wine, and it can get pretty uh, confusing. And that is why we will one day, at one point, have dedicated a wine law episode to everywhere, because knowing the wine law of a region is like cracking the code. It sort of like gives you this, like, you know, when you see like a Rubik's Cube master, just like, when you know the wine law, you are the Rubik's Cube master. You're the one who can be like, oh, is that a, and and figure it out. So that is why I love talking about wine law. Now, that is all to say that typically in the past, I've had kind of like a knee-jerk reaction away from studying South Africa and talking about South Africa because I just find it so difficult uh, because the wine law is pretty convoluted and because also they are an emerging, or should I say maybe re-emerging wine market. And there is always a lot of changes happening, which adds this kind of layer on top sort of puzzle. And there's nothing worse than having studied something and thinking you know it, and then going back a few months later and realizing that they've completely changed the legislation and that now you don't really know it anymore. So all to say, I uh, I kind of lump South Africa in with some of the more difficult countries and regions uh, to understand in terms of wine law. And people will often sort of talk about this in relation to like Burgundy and Germany and Austria as being up there as like very, uh, very difficult. But personally, I have also struggled with Australia a little bit in the past just because I kind of have a very hard time with Australian geography. Like where is what and what is where because I've never been there and it's literally on the other side of the world for me. Hi, Australians. Uh, I know there are some of you out there and I know um, you're listening from so far away. So hi, your wine law also kind of hard. Anyways, I digress. But this is all to say that wine law is tricky. Uh, And out of all the new world wines, quote unquote, again, I hate saying that for some reason, but I have yet to come up with a better way to say it. Uh, But it's still on my mind. Uh, South Africa is hardly a new world wine. They have been growing and making wine there for almost 400 years. 
And therein lies a little bit of the difficulty in why their wine law is so complicated. So what can you expect from this discussion on South African wine law? Well, we are going to go over the rules of making wine in South Africa. Then we're going to go over some of the greater GIs, those geographical units, and a few regions that exemplify why the wine law here is so confusing. Uh, you know, just to put it all into context. So if you like history and grapes, then backtrack, like I said, a year ago, and there's an episode that's just labeled South Africa. Uh, that's more of like a general overview. So let's get into it. You know, I love a good pyramid of quality here at House Wine that is really like the building block on which our foundation for understanding these wine regions is built. So if you are looking at or visualizing this pyramid in your mind with me, the base of the pyramid is where we start, and that is with the GIs. Yes, they call them GIs. Now, you would think that that stands for geographical indication, maybe, but no. Uh, that stands for geographical unit. So why are they called GIs and not GUs? Well, I don't know, but that's wine law for you. So in South Africa, there are six GIs, and they cover most of the country, except for like the, this like kind of tiny little center right, like circular center right in the interior. And South Africa was really ambitious in the 20th century with developing their wine structure and their wine laws. When no one was paying attention and most of the borders and trade were closed with South Africa, they were quietly developing wine law before the rest of the Western Hemisphere. They were at least 10 years ahead of the U.S. Uh, when they began delimiting GIs in 1973, which I think is pretty interesting uh, because we often kind of credit Napa with being kind of like the grandfather of New World wine, but they were really just kind of part of this like emergence of new wine regions that were all kind of happening around the same time that happened to be delimiting Appalachians around the same time and giving themselves legal standing uh, for, you know, import and export all around the world. I mean, we know that at the same time things were happening in other places that we've talked about, like Argentina and obviously South Africa. So the GIs that they carved out in the early 70s in South Africa were the Western Cape, the Northern Cape, the Eastern Cape, you see a theme with the capes here, but also the Free State, which is in the center of the country, KwaZulu-Natal in the east, and Limpopo uh, in the north, kind of closer to the border of Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Now, the Eastern Cape, Free State, Limpopo, KwaZulu-Natal, they don't make very much wine. In fact, the Northern Cape doesn't make that much wine either. Northern Cape was actually added a little bit later, not in 1973, but kind of neither here nor there for our purposes. What South Africa was really doing when they made these GIs in the 70s was they were planning for the eventuality of development and the further delimitation of wine regions in the future. Even though most of the wine that we know from South Africa comes from the Western Cape, and this is really where we see most of the development and subsequently the further delimitation of wine regions within the GI or the geographical unit. Because remember, and I think I say this pretty much every episode, but the two best visualizations for wine law are the pyramid and the Russian nesting dolls. Because 
they always seem to sort of unfurl into a region, inside a region, inside a region. And there is an area, like I said, inside of South Africa that is uncategorized by AGI, but that is most likely due to the climate, which is also the reason why we don't see much in the way of grapes being grown so much on the eastern side of the country. The Cape has a few factors that cool it down. It's got some winds, it's got some currents, and they make a much better place to grow grapes, but also give a lot of uh, what I call, or not just I, what they call, the greater they, calls microclimates. And microclimates and soils are usually a pretty good indicator of why some very small appellations were given their own status. And this is true all over the world, not just in South Africa. So now we know that there are six GIs, that is the base of our pyramid, and that most of the wine we drink is coming from the Western Cape. And the Western Cape also ends up being kind of a catch-all for blended wines that don't fit into a specific region, district, or ward. So, in fact, many of the wines that we see labeled as Western Cape are bulk wines, which is why we need to get even more site-specific if we are going to be talking about quality wines. Which brings us to regions. Regions are the tier above GIs, and they are still quite large, often encompass many districts and free-floating wards within them. Now, this is where things start to get complicated, because there are a number of free-floating districts and wards that exist outside regions. So really, South Africa takes my nesting doll analogy and just, like, throws it out the window. And this is also the reason why it is incredibly difficult to study South Africa because our minds, they want order. And when you look at a wine map of South Africa, you do not get order. You kind of get, sorry, South African wine lawmakers, chaos. You get something that just does not feel ordered because you want regions to be connected to districts, to be connected to wards. But sometimes they're just not. In fact, the Western Cape is the only GI that even has regions, and it is also the only GI with regions that has the new category, because they've added a new category, kind of fits right uh, lower center of our pyramid, and that is subregions. And there's only one. There are five regions in the Western Cape, and they are Breed River, Klein Karoo, Oliphants River, Cape South Coast, and the Coastal Region. There used to be a sixth. It was called Boberg, but it's since become defunct. They got rid of it. Again, constantly changing. The Cape South Coast subregion, though, is new as of 2020, and the country's first subregion, and it's comprised of three districts and two wards. Now, why all these regions? Why all these subregions and districts, you may ask? And I am also asking really, really confuses me. Well, the reason is because of blending. Blending is a big deal in South Africa. Up until the 1980s, blends only had to state the grape that made up to 30% of the blend on the label. So basically, that meant a wine labeled Chenin Blanc only had to be 30% Chenin Blanc in the bottle. And no one cared, because the only people that South Africa was really exporting to at the time were the British. And England wasn't part of the EU, so why bother, and who cares? But when England became part of the EU in the 80s, South Africa 
had to radically change the way they were labeling their blends. Because they were still in apartheid and they didn't have an export market, and their main export market was England, that meant that all of a sudden, when England became part of the EU, they had to adhere to the 85% rule for variety labeling to import to the only person who was buying their wines. And by person, I mean country. And this is where we get a lot of the Appalachian confusion from. Because South Africa, a country that had been producing wine for almost over 350 years at that point, basically had to superimpose this wine law over top of existing wine growing regions and delimit things to make rules for blends on the country that had never existed before, but that was already quite well established. Unlike, say, in the USA, where this grew a little bit more organically, the Appalachian system was developed along with the growth of the burgeoning wine industry. If South Africa wanted to do that, they would have had to start delimiting their regions in the 1700s. So going back to our pyramid, we have talked about GIs and regions, and we also know, know, we also know that there is a subregion, that it's a new thing, that it's called the Cape West Coast subregion. But after regions, the most site-specific designation is district. And districts, though there are a, fr- a few free-floating, free-floaters, are usually inside regions. And then, of course, there are wards. And the wards are the smallest, most site-specific of all the Appalachians. And these are usually based on terroir, on microclimates. These are really the most diverse of all the Appalachians. They can be inside a district, they can be inside a region, or they can be all the way out in the middle of nowhere, just kind of like rocking it on their own. And I suppose at that point you would classify them as just being within a GI. So they they bypass all the other regions and they're just a free-floating ward inside a GI. But if you are trying trying desperately to think about South African Appalachians in a more traditional sense, then it kind of goes something like this. Inside the Western Cape GI, you have the coastal region, which is a region. Then you have the subregion of Cape West Coast, which has the District of Darling inside of it. And in the District of Darling, you have the ward of, I'm going to try and say this word, guys, Groenenkloof. It's Afrikaans. Afrikaans is crazy. Groenenkloof. Okay, (laughs) so let's talk briefly uh, now about labeling, because that is also very important. And we started to touch uh, on that 85% rule and how it applies to South Africa and why they changed their model to be that rule. Well, within the Appalachian system, there are basically defaults for blending that exist to get around this kind of blending dilemma. Because due to fluctuating climate and water concerns, and also partly because of tradition, many of the wines of South Africa are blends. So within the Western Cape, there is a designation that is not an Appalachian at all, and that is called the Cape Coastal Designation. And that is specifically for blending. This is for wines that are blended between the Cape South Coast region and the coastal region, and these two regions only. And to be fair, they are very large regions, So, and they're right next to each other. So you can take grapes from one 
take grapes from the other, and then label it Cape Coastal designation. To label a wine by variety, and also by vintage, the stated vintage and variety must be 85% to appear on the label. And that's pretty standard all over the world. Most people do that because they want their wines to be imported into Europe. However, to be from the stated appellation in South Africa, it must be 100% from that place, which is why they have all these rules and subregions and geographical units so that wines can be labeled something besides just South Africa when they are blended across regions and across districts. And this is true also for wards that are blended with one another. If wards are blended, then they default back to the district that they are located in. Of course, this is difficult for wards that are not located within a district. So, of course, for those ones, they would fall back to the region or possibly even the GI that they're located within. Though that doesn't happen too often because the most common scenario is that wards would be blending with one another. They would be very geographically close close enough to share the same district. So unless they are floating wards, we are back to why South African wine law is so confusing. And I hope you were able to stay with me for that because as I was reading it and as I was talking about it, I could even feel myself being like, why? Why South Africa? Why do you do this? Why is it so, why is it so hard? Why have you made it so hard? Continuing on, there are also a few labeling things here to note for things like blends that do come up when we're talking about the rules and the regulations of this country. Blended wines in South Africa must, must label all, that's every single one, of the grapes that are blended on the label in descending order of how much of that wine they make up. There is an exception, though, and that is for wines that have two or more grapes that were blended and make up the dominant 85% of the blend. So let's do some examples. If a wine is 30% Chenin Blanc, 30% Muscat, 20% Sauvignon Blanc, and 20% Semillon, all of those grapes need to be listed in descending order on the bottle. If a wine is 50% Syrah, 40% Senso, and 10% Grenache, then the wine would be labeled as Syrah Senso, and they don't have to say anything about Grenache. And this is called the WO. All of these rules are part of the WO, or the Wines of Origin System. And you will see this term appearing very often on labels. Sometimes it kind of looks like the Italian DOCG sticker that's like around the foil. It's sort of like a, a little sticker that goes across the top of the bottle. And they detail everything. It's incredibly bureaucratic. Everything from the fonts and the size of the fonts on the label to the terms used for brandy. I will, in fact, link up the WOSA website in case you need even more detail than I have provided in this episode even though I copped out and did that in the last episode about South Africa. But I will do it for this one as well. And um, my gosh, is there anything else I could possibly tell you about South African wine law? It's already so much and so intense. And I, 
went down kind of a deep dive rabbit hole on it and um, came out with this episode. So I hope you found that enjoyable. I know this was a deep cut and is definitely for the nerds in the group. And hopefully this answers a few more questions uh, than the last time when I just sort of linked you to the show notes. Uh, So I will wind down and hopefully uh, not have bored too many of you. We'll do something fun and exciting next week, I promise. Pinky swear. If you do decide to learn more through the links in the show notes, while you're down there, uh, just scroll down for a minute, leave a rating, leave a review, uh, leave a, you know, five-star review, uh, turn on notifications, subscribe, do all the fun stuff, uh, because this podcast is 100% independent. I write, produce, and narrate. Uh, I want to say every week, but oh, I've been very spotty lately. But um, in my little pillow fort here in Toronto, if you did want to request an episode, you can do so at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to make a correction or a comment, you can do so there. Or you can also go on the Instagram. That's housewinepodcast on Instagram. Or you can just look me up if you want to see cute photos of my dog at Rachel Picard. That's Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. You know, South African wine, it gets, I'm not going to say it gets no love, but there it, there are good ones. And every time I feel like I bring this subject up, I'm like, just go experiment. You'll never know what you like until you go out and drink it or go out and try it or go out and sample it. So grab some South African wine this week. Get yourself something nice, something cheap, something cheerful. And uh, look at what they've written on the label. How many grapes? Is it a blend? How do they label it? What's the font? What's the size? Do they have that little sticker on top? And I will see you all next week. I hope you drink something delicious. <laughs>